Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. I'd just like to say that it's really hard to talk for a minute or two without anybody else, without using the word um, and without sounding like Ira Glass. I didn't know this until recently, but I know it now. This is episode 13 of this podcast. Um, They are meant to be sequential, so if you like to understand what's going on, you might want to start with one. I assure you, if you go back and start with one, it is definitely worth it. Uh, The story we are telling is called The Infinitely Spiraling Clock, and it is a sequel to a book called The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum, which I wrote a few years ago. It's a lovely book. It has beautiful pictures by my wife, Felix Eddy. I encourage you to go out and buy it. Most of the time, I do my very best to make sure, though, that if you haven't bought the book, you can still listen to this one without there being too much that's confusing. However, there are a few references this time to things that happened in the other book. You're just going to have to roll with that. Anyway, I just want to say thanks for listening. If you would like to subscribe and leave a review, that's great. That's all I got for now. The news is next. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date under the island's 15-month calendar is November tide the 14th. Please adjust your calendars accordingly. Now here's the post-apocalyptic report. The Santiago Council has voted unanimously to approve funding to do restorations to the Sydney Opera House, which town authorities are reporting is massively waterlogged after being underwater for several centuries. Local architectural engineers are looking for ways to reinforce the Opera House's famous domes and get the eels out of the basement. The Yeti living in the Highlands has been seen wandering around the shops downtown. If you see him, please don't offer him a comb. He likes his hair that way. It's part of his culture. You can, if you are feeling brave, offer him a banana. Michelangelo will be having a painting and drawing workshop for children ages 5 to 10 at the Santiago Community Center next Thursday. When asked if he wasn't a tad overqualified for the job, the great master was quoted as saying, I've got to get them early if I have any hope. Once they've seen a Picasso, it's over. Picasso could not be reached for comment. Anthony and Cleopatra's Bar and Grill will be having a wet toga contest on Saturday. Both sectors are welcome to participate. Wings and draft ale will be half off. It's recommended that you avoid the dates. Protests from conservative Canaanites are expected. It's another sunny day here in the island of Santiago. Tomorrow also sunny, the day after that sunny with a chance of wind. The WXYZ Weather Fergus has threatened to move to Los Angeles. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now, 
The Infinitely Spiraling Clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time. The beginning of the beginning. For two years, Alice was so happy that her life was scarcely worth mentioning. Happy people generally lead dull lives, which are not worth chronicling, and Alice had no problem in trading a life that made for good reading for one that left a feeling of contentment deep within her soul. Since money was not a problem that time travelers had to worry about, Keith and Alice mostly divided their time between the island of San Tiempo and modern London. They bought a flat in Holborn during the 1970s when real estate was cheap and popped in and out of whatever year pleased them. Keith had shown a great aptitude for collecting the sort of antiquities that the time travelers resort and museum wanted. Keith bought a motorcycle which he found better at negotiating the London streets. They always traveled together and brought Grendel whenever they could. Spring was developing a life of her own and went traveling on her own often. She had apparently been singing in speakeasies in New York in the 1920s and would pop back into the 19th century when she was homesick. But they still met in Santiempo often. Alice and Keith were happy so happy that they were in danger of treading off into that banal kingdom of happily ever after, until one day when that happiness fell apart. It was a day in early spring, the kind of day when it seems like winter might at long last be over and the glorious beauty of nature was finally returning. Keith and Alice had just arrived back in London, Keith had gotten a lead on a rare piece for the museum that he was keeping quiet about, and Alice just wanted to do some shopping. The island of Santiempo had many, many things, but it didn't have a Marks and Spencer. They arrived early and agreed to meet back at the Gristle and Thorn at lunchtime. Keith had taken Grendel and put him in the sidecar of his motorcycle and had headed off somewhere with a promise of doing his best to be there on time. Alice got there first and sat down at a table. A generic Fergus walked up to the table and she ordered a Venusian sunrise and sat down. Maybe I should call my sister, she thought as she waited for a drink. Scratch that, I'm too knackered. London was five hours and several centuries behind Santiempo and she was feeling a little wiped. Still, it was only late afternoon in Santiempo. That didn't explain why she was as tired as she was. Maybe she should skip the drink. A couple at the table next to her was sharing a salad and drinking Guinness. They looked like inexperienced time travelers who had just come in from the Restoration era. The woman was wearing a corset over her dress and had a clearly visible tattoo. The man was more subtle, but had a pair of goggles strapped to the top of a brown suede top hat 
in a way that made Alice wonder what activity would involve both needing goggles and not having the top hat blow off your head. There's an astronomy conference over in Cambridge, the man said. The woman laughed derisively. Do you think we should go and take the piss? The woman asked. As a former speaker at the Royal Astronomy Conference, Alice bristled at the idea of making fun of physicists simply for not knowing about the complicated nature of time travel. She knew that her status as the mother of time still gave her a certain clout and gave them a dirty look. It was only after she had given her last presentation at the RAC and had been stranded in the 19th century that she... Alice's train of thought derailed as it was coming into the station. Keith had done the flying this morning, and as ridiculous as it sounded to be laissez-faire about what year they were traveling to, Alice had done just that. She hadn't bothered to pay attention to what year they had landed in. Somehow she had assumed that Keith had brought them to the present, or at any rate, what would be the present for her. It hadn't occurred to her that for Keith, all of this was the future, and 2017 was the same as 2019 or 2021. For her, of course, the consequences were drastic. Excuse me, she said, standing up and walking over to the generic Fergus at the bar. The Fergus stared at her with a vacant but pleasant smile and ping-pong ball eyes, was in the middle of making her a drink and was probably thinking that she wanted it. Hello, he said brightly. How can I help you? Can you tell me what day it is? Of course, the Fergus said. It's April the 17th. There are some dates in your life that you do not forget, like your birthday or your parents' wedding anniversary. Alice was never going to forget the day that Malcolm Oliver died, and her life changed, for better or for worse. Today was the day that it all started. It was the day that she first met Keith Quick. The day that she was detained for murder. The murder of her ex-boyfriend, Malcolm Oliver. Malcolm Oliver. That was who Keith was meeting. He was being so secretive because he had gotten a lead on Excalibur. Today was the last day that she talked to him. Today was the day that an aging Jack Cassidy, who is better known to the world as Professor Moriarty, would kill Malcolm Oliver if he had not done already. Today was the day that Alice took her first steps into the world of time travel. Today, and today, and today. Alice realized that the younger version of herself was going to walk through the front door of the Gristle and Thorn in a matter of minutes. She remembered how the Fergus handed her the drink that she had ordered the first time she walked in without her even ordering it. Right, Alice said. She smiled at the generic Fergus. I'm going to walk out the back and then, well, come back in the front. You can give me my drink then. I'll be, well, a few years younger and a little lost. I'm sorry, that's a weird request, isn't it? The Fergus smiled faintly. This is a time traveler bar, Mum. Weird is what we do. Alice ran out the back, where she found a Vincent Black Shadow motorcycle with a sidecar pulling up. Keith Quick was dismounting. Grendel the Triceratops was sitting in the sidecar, wagging his tail enthusiastically. 
Nag, Grendel said brightly. Alice did her very best to grin warmly at the little dinosaur and very nearly succeeded. Hi, Keith beamed brightly. He looked exactly the way he did the first time she met him because, of course, that was going to happen inside of an hour. His World War I hat and goggles were slightly askew and his leather jacket had the patina on it that it had picked up from flying in an open cockpit. Alice didn't know what to say, so she pulled his face toward hers and kissed him. Their lips sat there, pressed together. Alice's hands ran along the back of his neck. He was her husband. But now it was time to say goodbye. I love you, Alice thought. I love you, I love you, I love you. She thought the words but didn't say them. Saying them would also imply another thought. Goodbye. What was that for? Keith asked, smiling. The innocent look on his face clearly demonstrated that he had no idea what he was in for. Nothing, Alice said desperately, trying to hide all the emotion from her face. Nothing. I just realized that I forgot something. I'll be right back. Why didn't you go in? I'll be back in half a moment. Okay, Keith said. You won't believe who I spoke to today. He started. Tell me later, Alice replied. Then she kissed him again, turned, and said, I'll be right back. Alice went back to the front of the building and peeked around the corner for the briefest moment. She saw the back of her own head walking into the bar. It was just for an instant, but nonetheless, she saw herself. Once, both a long time ago and in a few days' time, Keith referred to the act of existing in two different places at once as double-tracking. Alice didn't think much of it at the time. It sounded like an insider's term, the sort of thing you would say if you were in the know and talking with others who were too. You would think that the worst part of seeing yourself would be looking at your own bottom, but it wasn't that at all. It was the odd, creepy sensation that ran up and down your spine like you had just walked over your own grave. Alice shuddered and walked quickly away. Just like that, Alice's husband was gone. When she thought about Keith's appearance, Alice would reflect on how maddeningly short the entire encounter was. The whole thing had lasted maybe five minutes, maybe less. In less time than it had taken a bartender to make her a drink, Alice had lost her husband. She had been happy, and in the amount of time it would take to go to the loo, that was gone. What did I just say?
just a boy. I understood what's right. It all seemed to make sense. and the light Then as an adult I made a mistake it Happens all the time what you take These are the stories of my life These are the chapters of my years These are the pages of my For the first time in her life, Alice had to book passage back to the island of Santiempo. She felt the need to get back to the island straight away. If Keith Quick was going to come back anywhere, it would be to the Time Traveler's Resort and Museum. Also, she would need to get a new time orb. Without any way to get back to the future or the past, she felt helpless. 
Also, it occurred to her that she was going to have to get some sort of flying apparatus. Alice only knew how to fly a biplane. She thought that she might buy something more up-to-date, but then it occurred to her that she hadn't actually bought the biplane yet in the first place. Since there was no commercial airline that would take her to Santiempo, Alice had to go down to H.G. Wells Airport and talk to the Fergus who was working there. Fortunately, it turned out that the couple from the bar was heading back to the island that afternoon in a large dirigible and were happy to give her a lift. Still, these arrangements took time, and with the time differential by the time she arrived home, it was early the next morning and Alice was properly knackered. Spring was gone. Grendel was there and had greeted her with a happy butt wiggle that suggested that she would really feel better if she let him out in the backyard. Alice smiled and scratched his horn. It occurred to her that Grendel must be several years older than he had been the last time she had seen him. She let Grendel out and then collapsed on her bed. Before she passed out, she sat staring for just a moment at the indentation Keith had left on the other side of the bed, at the odd coins and clutter that had come out of his pockets. Keith was gone. Among time travelers, the issue of double-tracking or revisiting your own past and interacting with events is as contentious as it is common. Those who do it tend to fall into two categories— The first were those who embraced the ability to change their lives and send much happier versions of themselves off into an alternative timeline without a care in the world. The second group were those whose lives seemed to be a closed loop and who would watch, often tragically, as they made the same mistakes and their loved ones suffered. Alice had inadvertently turned out to be one of the latter, and while she was bitter and angry about how she had lost Keith, There was a small thought wandering around the back of her mind that felt contented with the result because it seemed like it had been fated to happen. Perhaps this was comforting because if they were fated to have been torn apart then they were also fated to have been together even though fate was the most unscientific concept Alice could think of. Alice stared around the room at all the things Keith left behind until she closed her eyes and then she thought about nothing at all. When Spring heard Keith was gone, she headed back to San Tiempo straight away. Spring had been keenly aware that this day was coming, although she hadn't known when it would arrive exactly. When she came back, it was early the next morning, and she found her friend collapsed on the couch in the living room of the little house they shared in San Tiempo. Alice looked like a marionette that had had its strings cut. Spring tried to approach the conversation with a sympathetic look on her face, even though she knew full well that Alice was entirely at fault here. Hi, Spring said simply. I am time's fool, Alice said melodramatically. Nonsense, Spring said. He's gone. He was always going to disappear. You knew that. I didn't know it, Alice said. I caused it. When I first started time travelling, I was so mixed up people were accusing me of murder, and I thought Keith was a part of it because I knew he was lying to me, and I thought he was jealous of Malcolm. Malcolm. 
Jealous of Malcolm, that seemed like a ridiculous idea now. And it made so much sense at the time. Keith didn't have a jealous bone in his body. And even if he had, certainly two and a half years of marriage had washed all that away. I was afraid, and I ran, and Keith ran after me because he wanted to help, and then he fell into a time hole, and he's been gone ever since. Now you know, Spring said, you know why he did what he did. You have felt the love that he felt, and you have lived a life that he wanted you to live. <sighs> Alice sighed. I suppose kissing your husband goodbye on the day you met him is a pretty good way to end things. Spring sat down on the couch next to her friend and stroked Alice's hair. It isn't over, Spring pointed out. You just need to find him. I can't, Alice said. You can, Spring answered. He could be anywhere, Alice countered. He's not. Spring replied. He's in Camelot. You know that. I can't get there, Alice wailed. When I first met you, you were 200 years removed from home. You figured out how to jump two centuries forward on your own with no help from anyone. You're a genius. You'll figure out how. I can't, Alice protested. Yes, I figured out how to travel through time, but it wasn't easy. I had to bend the laws of physics as far as they would go. The only reason I was able to do it was that Keith kept insisting that I already had. This time it's different. I don't know that I can find Keith. I don't know that I'm meant to. <sighs> Spring sighed. You have to try. Even if it means embracing a few things that are outside of your understanding. What do you mean? Alice asked. Camelot is a magical place, Spring answered. You need to find some real magic. I will bet my mother's hair that once you find some, you can find your way back to Camelot. Alice understood that Spring was probably right, but the idea frustrated her. I don't know where to start, she admitted. Start with your first step. Spring said, no matter how small, even if it's just stepping out your own front door. Alice didn't say anything. Grendel came over and sniffed her face, hopefully. I need to buy a plane, Alice mumbled a little pathetically, and a time orb. Spring gave her just the tiniest hint of a smile. Here you go, she said. Alice went and bought the biplane. She had desperately wanted to buy something that had a cockpit, but there were two small problems. The first was that a biplane was an obscenely easy machine to fly, and the second was that she already seemed to own it already. Predestination can make a surprisingly good sales pitch. Besides, she told herself, the biplane is probably much easier to sneak in and out of the mid-sixth century. She also bought a new time orb. Again, she suspected it was actually the same orb that she and Keith had lost, but without the orb to compare it to, it was more difficult to tell. 
Then she and Spring headed out on their quest. Alice made an appointment with Phaedra to get another fill-up on liquid time, which Phaedra was more than happy to do. Good to see you back, love, Phaedra said brightly as she led them down to the museum's sub-sub basement. I know that you have been busy lately. Thank you, Alice said politely. They were planning on heading straight to the airport and dressed accordingly. Alice was wearing an old leather bomber jacket of Keith's and a pair of tan pants that made her look more than a little like Amelia Earhart. Spring had on a strapless white flapper dress over which she'd thrown a tan raincoat. Having grown up in the 19th century, Spring was more resilient against cold weather, which never ceased to mystify her friend. Phaedra gave the guard at the well of time a nod and then let them into the room. Give me your orb, love. I will fill it up, and then we can get you on your way. Alice handed over the orb. Just as she did, Phaedra's assistant walked in. Miss Phaedra, he said politely, there's a small matter that requires your attention. Half a moment, dears, half a moment, Phaedra said, and her assistant led her away. For a moment, Alice and Spring stared at the glittering silvery pool in silence. Liquid time seemed to move differently than any other liquid. The ripples on the surface looked frictionless, and even in the dark cave it glowed just slightly. It's beautiful, Spring said appreciatively. It is, Alice agreed. How'd you get hold of some of this when we were back in the 19th century? Spring asked. I found some in a hoodenometer, Alice explained. Spring thought about this. A hoodenometer, she asked. What's that? It's a device that will open any lock. I didn't have much use for it at the circus, so it sat in my handbag for the better part of a year. Then when I finally realized that I had to have some liquid time somewhere, I cracked open the hoodenometer. And there it was. Houdinometer? Spring asked. Was it named after Houdini? Alice nodded. That's right, she said. There was a very long pause. Alice could tell that Spring was thinking intently. And it opens locks? Spring asked. It does. Alice agreed. It's very impressive. It transforms into the shape of any key. Why would a device that can transform into any key need to have liquid time in it? Alice shrugged. I don't know, she admitted. There was another long pause. This is it, Spring said. Later, Alice would insist that regardless of the outcome, Spring should not have done what she did, since literally anything could have happened. However, Alice only got to make statements like that afterward. Truth be told, the reason that Spring did what she did so quickly was so that no one could stop her. Spring felt that what they needed was a leap of faith, and she understood that Alice wasn't the one to take that leap. Alice was a scientist. The idea of doing something based on faith was anathema to everything she believed in. Spring, on the other hand, believed in magic. She knelt over, and before Alice could stop her, 
She cupped her hands and placed them in the pool. Before Alice could say anything, Spring drank deep from the well of liquid time. Spring! Alice shouted. Spring, what are you doing? It was difficult to describe what happened next. At first it seemed as though Spring was having a seizure. Her body collapsed on the ground like a sack of wet cement. Alice rolled her over. Spring's eyes were closed and she started thrashing. This would be scary enough, but there was something else. Something was moving under Spring's skin. It looked like little balls under her skin pulsing from her heart on outward. Even under the skin, the balls glowed brightly like tiny fireflies that were swimming down her veins. Spring's arms and legs flailed about wildly as if her body was being shaken by some giant invisible hand. Alice had no doubt that her friend was going to die. And then, suddenly, the moment had passed. The lights pulsing under Spring's skin had gone, and Alice was sure that she was dead. Help! Alice shouted. Someone, please help me! Phaedra and her assistant apparently hadn't gone far and came running quickly. What is it? Phaedra asked. She drank liquid thyme! Alice shouted. Is it poisonous? What do we need to do? Phaedra stared at Spring wide-eyed. She looked more than a little panic-stricken and was clearly unprepared to handle the situation. I... I don't know, she admitted. I... I don't think anyone has ever... She stopped herself and then stammered, I'll go get someone, before running off. Her assistant followed her. Spring's eyes were still closed. Alice felt for a pulse. Although her friend's heart was beating like a rabbit, Spring did seem to be a little better now. She was lying still. Whatever it was had passed through her system. Alice took off her jacket and put it under her friend's head. It was all she knew to do. A minute went by. Then two. Alice picked up Spring's hand and squeezed. Then suddenly, Spring squeezed back. Spring opened her eyes. Alice smiled and tried to pretend that she wasn't frightened. Are you all right? she asked. I think so, Spring said with a faint smile. Do I look all right? Alice did her very best to smile back, but she could only do so weakly. You look fine, she lied, except... Well, your eyes. My eyes, she asked. Alice nodded. They're gold, she admitted. Spring's irises were, in fact, gold. They glittered, the shiny golden color of a new wedding ring. There was power in her eyes. Alice could see it. Spring sat up slowly. Give us a look, she said. Alice reached into her pocket and opened her phone. She pulled up the camera app and handed it to Spring so that she could use it as a mirror. Spring stared down at her own glowing eyes. Do they work? Alice asked. Can you see? I can see things that dreams are made of, Spring said. And then she added, help me up. I need to take off my coat. As Alice helped Spring get up, it was easy to see why Spring wanted to take the coat off. 
The coat clearly didn't seem to be fitting just right anymore. It almost looked as if Spring were a hunchback. Careful, Spring said as Alice slipped off the coat. It's delicate. Alice got the coat off and dropped it on the floor. Phaedra took this moment to run back into the room. The paramedics are on their way, she said. I had to run all the way upstairs to find the phone. Are you all right? Never better, Spring said. She turned back toward Alice and said, Unzip me. Are you sure? Alice asked. She could see why Spring was asking, but Spring had complained about not wearing a petticoat a few years ago, so the idea of stripping down to her pants in public seemed like a fairly big change. Positive, Spring insisted. I need to stretch out. Phaedra stared at her incredulously. What on earth, she said, taking a pause for dramatic effect, possessed you, another pause, to drink liquid thyme. It isn't liquid thyme, Spring said simply. It's magic. Houdini, he was good with locks, but he was a magician too. That's what gave me the idea. Alice unzipped the dress. Spring gave a shake of her shoulders, and the dress fell to the floor. Magic, Phaedra asked. Are you sure? I'm sure, Spring said, and a pair of enormous dragonfly wings spread out from her back. Spring fluttered her wings and rose into the air. Alice stared up at her friend. You're a fairy, she said with a kind of numb amazement. Spring's golden eyes twinkled. I'm going to need to speak to my sisters, she declared. After that, I'm going to fly. When Spring finished this story, before Helen even had a chance to draw a breath, Spring said, Under no circumstances are you allowed to drink liquid thyme. Helen spent a very long two seconds wondering whether or not it was worth denying that she was thinking of doing just that. Why not? she asked. Do you know the troll that lives under the bridge on the far side of Sentiempo? Spring asked. Helen nodded nervously. He used to be an archaeologist at the University of Edinburgh, Spring replied. He wrote his dissertation on Pictish architecture. Helen didn't say anything to this, but her eyes grew very wide. As an adult, she would appreciate the risk that Spring had taken to help her father. I didn't do it to help your father, she would insist. I did it to help your mother. I could take a leap that she couldn't. Helen could see the truth to this, although she couldn't help but think that any leap that ended with you having never to hit the ground was probably one worth taking. And now, and now, acts of poetry. September. I was halfway done when you came along, with gray hair and a little overweight. So you never saw me when I was young, back when I was in a beautiful state. I could tell you tales of my life before, 
I could tell you stories that flatter me. I could tell you of that and so much more. I could tell you so much, but let it be. Let's make the second half the better one. Let's dance and sing and let our spirits fly. Let's fill all our days with laughter and fun. Let's lift our hearts up right into the sky. I have learned the most precious time is now. Let's try to make it ours somehow. This has been a random act You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hi. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. And I would just like to go on record as saying I know I have the creakiest chair in the history of podcasting. It's this old wooden chair. It's very comfy. It's got wheels. It's missing one of them. I'm pretty sure it's in this room with me somewhere, but it's been, I don't know, in a corner for years or something. I've tried to hint to my wife that I want her to come down and find it, but so far she's ignored the hints. I can't say I blame her because I make her find a lot of stuff that I've lost. I just want to say thanks for listening. It means a lot to me that you've come this far. If you've never picked up a copy of The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum, my book, which this is a sequel to, well, you might want to do that. It tells the story from a more Alice-centric point of view. has a bit of a mystery to it. It's got a lot of fun pictures by my wife, Felix Eddy. It's available from my publisher, Mirror World. It's also available from my wife's website, FelixEddy.com. If you want to subscribe and leave a review, that's great. I've been told that if you subscribe, it might help other people to find the podcast, and then maybe they'll subscribe, which is not really the point of a subscription at all. But who knows? I'm really doing this for one person, and that's you. You're my listener. Thanks. Up next week, we are going to see part three in this saga, The End of the King. That's it for now. Thanks. See you next time.